The following lecture, entitled Paper, A Search for Surface, was delivered by Leonard Schlosser at the Columbia University School of Library Service on Monday, the 9th of July, 1990. This is the 296th Friend of the Book Arts Press lecture and the first lecture of Rare Book School, 1990. Good evening. And welcome to the first lecture of Rare Book School 1990. It's good to welcome so many of you here. There will be nine lectures over the next four weeks, as Friends of the Book Arts Press know, three this week. Those who received information by mail have it correct. The Rare Book School Vadi Makum for this week is incorrect. The lectures this week are, in fact, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Christopher Ridgway's lecture is on Wednesday. It is not as erroneously reported in the Vadi Makum on Tuesday. So as I say, those of you who haven't looked at the Vadi Makum should not listen to this because it will just confuse you. <laughs> there will be a reception immediately following this lecture in room 523 that I hope you'll all attend. I apologize for the confusion in the back of the room. The linotype machine isn't very pretty either, and it works too. That's a brand new air conditioner in there, or it will be when it works. And uh, we haven't yet painted the windows up. Our lecturer this evening is Leonard Schlosser, who over a period of many years assembled probably the greatest collection of books and related materials on the history of paper in private hands, possibly in public hands in this country. He recently gave that collection to the New York Public Library and a major exhibition of the collection will open at New York Public later this year. Meanwhile, we have Mr. Schlosser himself to speak on various aspects of papermaking history in the search for surface. It's a great pleasure to welcome him here tonight. Thank, thank you all. I, uh, I'm not sure about some of the mixed signals I'm getting. The, the uh, announcement of the lecture I noted when Terry gave it to me before had me cast in the role of Byron, which I must say I don't think I have been before. Then I looked behind me and saw a book that said The Fountain of Temperance. So somewhere in between, I think, is where we may come out. Um, I'm going to try to uh, give you uh, this evening a slightly different view uh, of <clears throat> uh, the long history of paper without... Uh, dealing with it in a strictly chronological sense, which is in some ways a bore, and uh, in addition to that would be rather too long, I think. So I have uh, attempted to put together a uh, session which really will try to illustrate for you developments and changes which have taken place in the making of paper over the centuries uh, since paper came to Europe uh, and what they accomplished in terms of changing surfaces because when all is said and done as printing processes particularly those dealing with illustration have changed and evolved over that period. They have, each of them, placed new demands upon paper, which have to do largely with its function as a substrate for printing. And really, then, the development of paper, which has been in response to market needs, can be expressed uh, as a search for surface. Uh, just a a uh, small prefatory note uh, in about four sentences. You know that paper uh, was an Eastern invention. Its origins 
uh, are buried in China. In more recent years, they have been dated rather earlier than was originally thought. The date of 105 AD, so often assigned to the origin of paper, is really the date of the issuance of a fiat um, arrogating the patent or whatever it was at the time to a court noble named Tsai Lun. But researchers in Western China <clears throat> have in recent years uh, demonstrated that paper or proto-paper existed uh, a number of years, maybe a number of hundreds of years before 105 AD. So it can be fairly said that uh, the development of paper as we know it uh, began certainly at about the time of the birth of Christ and possibly before. It began in China and didn't come uh, to Europe until much later, as we shall see in a moment, uh, but it had antecedents. That's supposed to turn the projector on, but I don't think it did. Oh, did it? Did I just turn it off? Okay. It's on now. Thank you. Uh, it did have Western antecedents, of which the most well-known and uh, the one which in some sense gave paper its name was papyrus. This is uh, a picture of a piece of papyrus, which I think, yeah, that's better, uh, which is really not paper at all but is split reeds which have been laid over one another and beaten together so as to hold themselves together with their own mucilaginous material. So paper is, papyrus is an antecedent of paper only in the sense that it is a flexible substrate for writing. In terms of its nature, it is unpaper-like. Paper, however, came to Europe uh, by way of North Africa, uh, the Arabs having uh, captured some Chinese prisoners at Samarkand in the ninth century, brought paper with them uh, to the, some of the prisoners were paper makers, brought paper with them to North Africa and brought paper to the European continent first in Khativa in Spain in the Moorish occupation in about 1100. Um, that still was paper made in the Arabic way, uh, which was to pound the rag fibers, they were linen rags, in a hand mortar with a pestle. The first truly European development, and therefore the first truly European paper, did not take place until about the middle of the 13th century in Italy, uh, and that involved a development which we'll see in a moment. Prior to uh, the invention of printing uh, in about 1450, paper existed as a writing material. This is a document written in Perugia in 1300. Uh, documents on paper were rather less common then than documents on vellum and cost more, in fact. Uh, but paper was used uh, beginning really with the earliest times in Italy, that is paper of European manufacture, um, and it was used for printing, of course, because it was welcomed, because as soon as the multiplying power of printing became known, it was patently obvious that vellum, which did perfectly well for written documents, would not be in plentiful supply enough to serve as the main material for books. Uh, there, that point is made in a very interesting way in uh, Fevre and Martin's L'Apparition du Livre, in which they say that had Gutenberg had to depend upon the availability of vellum, the whole course of printing might very well have changed or might very well not have come about until much later. And they speak of, uh, obviously, the invention of paper 
and the invention of oil-based ink as being equally paramount in importance to Gutenberg's invention of typecasting. Uh, this is a leaf from the Caxton Chaucer of 1477, typifies early European paper with the wide laid marks that one sees. The laid lines, of course, and most of you will know this, the laid lines being the lines which run in this direction, the rather heavier lines which one sees this way are uh, what we call chain marks, and they actually are the stitches of wire which hold the wires of the mold uh, together. Now, why is this called laid paper? Laid for a very simple reason. These wires, this is before, <clears throat> before the ability of people to weave wire into screening before by at least 300 years. Therefore, in order to provide a sieve-like surface on which fibers could be supported while the water drained away, these transverse wires were laid, literally laid under tension on a frame called a mold. They had to be sewn down to keep them from moving so they were sewn down by the chain wires. Here you see one more clearly. And it became obvious pretty early on that in addition to sewing them down, because that left a mark, it was possible to put a watermark in the paper by sewing another wire in a design, in this case a unicorn, uh, to the surface of the mold. The mold is nothing more or less than a strainer to support the fiber mat and permit the water to drain away and then to permit the paper to be couched or from the French word coucher to lay, laid onto a felt and then pressed to get more water out and then eventually to permit the water to dry by evaporation. And a paper machine, as we will see in a little bit, doesn't work really terribly differently. Now, at this point, most people show a picture of the first paper maker in the Yost Amman uh, Trades book of 1568. And that's appropriate because it's a picture of a paper maker but much more appropriate is an illustration of a printing press. There is one in the Amman book, but it is not the first illustration of a printing press because the earliest, so far as we know, the earliest reproduced illustration, not drawing, is the one used in the device of Jos Bad, Jodocus Badius, the Paris printer, uh, this one from 1507, which is about as early as he used it. Uh, it gives us an idea of what the earliest printing press looked like, and the wooden press didn't really change very much until much later on. But it was this wooden press which caused the demand for paper to take its first geographical bounce upward. It was also uh, the it was also this press and its method of printing, relief printing, printing from a raised surface, typographic printing by another name. It was this method of printing which dominated the printing of paper and the surface of paper for the printing of type from the very earliest times, only 50 years before this, until about 1950. So that the age of letterpress printing can fairly be said to have lasted just about 500 years. Now that permitted paper to have a rough surface because the type in relief was pressed into the surface and consequently, the paper could be pretty rough 
and yet give a good impression of type. Look at any unillustrated incunable, and you will see what I mean. In fact, you can look at illustrated incunables, and the same applies with a few notable exceptions, like the Landino Dante, which has engravings in it, but more of that in a moment. That rough surface of paper was a result of its preparation in part and a result of uh, the fact that there was no demand for any other than a rough surface at this time. And this is a picture of the first European invention which made the greater production of paper possible, the stamper. This machine consists of these hammers, which in some cases are shod with iron, in other cases are plain wood, which go up and down in a stone trough, of which here we see it taken apart. Here is the trough. They go up and down in a stone trough, motivated by the camshaft here, which is turned by this water wheel, uh, and these hammers, as they went up and down, and they are, uh, there are extant ones, a few, uh, they are timbers that are about 10 by 10 inches, so they're enormously heavy. The hammering action of those stampers upon bits of rag, which had previously been torn up, defibered the rag and made it into fibrous form so it could, in turn, be dipped onto a mold and permitted to mat itself after the water drained away. The stamper remained in use from its invention in the 13th century until it was taken over by another device uh, in about the middle of the 17th century. So for about 400 years, this was the way fiber was prepared for papermaking. In the same book of which, uh, from which the illustration I just showed you came, which is uh, Vittorio Zonca's Novo Teatro uh, de Machinarum, uh, is the earliest illustration we know of of a rolling press. This is, and this book is 1607. Of course, that means the press existed for some years before but this is the first illustration of it. Now the rolling press had an enormous effect upon printing and upon the surface of paper because for the first time <clears throat> it became possible to print intaglio plates, engravings first and then etchings, <clears throat> which had to be printed separately from the letterpress. The difference between early illustrated books which contained relief wood blocks and the books of only a few years later which contained engravings is that the wood blocks could be locked up with the type and printed in one impression. Engravings had to be printed separately. And although by this time there was already differentiation being made, between paper as a writing material, which required a smoother surface for the quill pen, and paper for printing, this required yet another differentiation, because in order to print engravings properly, the sizing of the paper had to be adjusted so that it would get into the grooves of the plate to pull out the ink, and in addition to that, to have a smoother surface for the reproduction of engravings like this one by Martin Schongauer. Uh, this is not as early as engravings go, but it is a very early one. And very shortly thereafter, still another process, another illustrative process, another intaglio process, which became important to the surface of paper, came along. And this is a, a Durer etching on iron the first medium used rather than copper, much rougher than copper, uh, but with more lines because of the acid biting 
than could possibly be cut with a graver, and as time developed, finer lines, so that the surface of paper for etching became required to be different than the surface of paper for letterpress printing. Now, I mentioned the Londino Dante before. Uh, in uh, that book, which I believe is 1480, the 80 or 81, in the Londino Dante, there are engravings thought to be after designs by Botticelli. Uh, those engravings are tipped into the book. They are not printed in the book because no one by, at that early had figured out how to put paper through two different presses at two different times and keep the illustrations and register uh, with the type. That came later. Well, I said that the stamper was supplanted by another device. The other device was the Hollander beater. Pay no attention to this. That's an unrelated illustration. This is from a book of 1719, uh, a German book called Vollständige Mühlenbaukunst by uh, a man by the name of Sturm, and shows the Hollander beater for the first time. It is thought that it began in use in about 1670 and perhaps a little before that. Um, but the Dutch were adept paper makers. They were making paper for export for an interesting reason, which I'll tell you about in a moment. Uh, but the Dutch paper industry, beginning uh, in about 1650, took a sudden jump upward and required more paper to be produced, that more paper could be produced more readily with a more or less continuous device like the Hollander beater rather than the stamper, which was a batch device. The beater is still a, a batch device, but was able to produce paper more rapidly. Now remember I said in the stamper that the hammers went up and down and beat on the fiber, to beat on the rag pieces to defiber them. In the beater, the action is rather different. The material, the water suspension containing bits of rag would flow through the beater here, down, I'm sorry, the other way around, would flow through the beater here, the roll going in this direction, bars around, iron bars originally, later bronze, around the periphery of the roll, <clears throat> which would press the rag between the bed of the beater and the moving roll, drive it up this device called a backfall, and by gravity, the suspension would flow down here and around a tub and come back again to be beaten over. Much better control of fiber uh, was possible with this. The Dutch very quickly became <coughs> adept and uh, popular papermakers. The Dutch papermaking industry, by the way, reached its ascendancy in the 1650s for a rather interesting reason. Uh, you will remember that the Edict of Nantes, which uh, permitted the toleration of Protestants in France, uh, was went in in the 16th century and was revoked in 1658. Uh, many of the French papermakers were Huguenot Protestants who departed pretty immediately uh, for Holland and most of the early uh, additional Dutch papermakers were French Protestants who went to North Holland uh, and joined the Dutch paper industry to help aggrandize it. Etching reaches probably its high point, certainly humanistically, with Rembrandt. And you begin to see, in looking at this, the difficulty of printing and etching of this kind. Rembrandt, as you know, did his own printing and was a great experimenter with paper. He used oriental paper, among other things, but he was searching for a surface which would enable him <clears throat> to gain different effects 
but also to print his etchings in his opinion in a better manner. Uh, paper was changing very rapidly then because this is just at about the time of the introduction of the Hollander Beater in Holland. So it's interesting to think of Rembrandt as an etcher uh, seeking paper locally upon which he could print, which was perhaps of new local manufacture made by what was then an advanced method. The last of the intaglio processes, mezzotint, arrived in the 1660s <clears throat> and required the most uh, refined surface of paper of all until that time because a mezzotint paper, a mezzotint plate, which is grounded over all with black like this, is easily abraded and if paper has a rough surface, uh, it's possible with a soft copper mezzotint to get no more than 10 or 12 impressions from the plate before it starts to be burnished and changes in character. This uh, etching, uh, this mezzotint I should say, by Prince Ruprecht from uh, John Evelyn's Sculptura of 1652, uh, 1662, uh, is uh, almost as early as mezzotints appear. The next advance in paper required another technological change. In the 1750s, uh, drawn wire, that is wire which was possible to draw through a die, became physically possible to make. And drawn wire, in turn, enabled people to weave wire screening as if it were wire cloth. John Baskerville, who had made his fortune in the Japaning trade <clears throat> in Birmingham, had an idea that in order to refine the surface of paper, to take the refined serifs of his type, that he would like to do two things. He would like to get paper which had a smoother surface than the laid paper which was available to him, which he then improved by polishing it further with hot copper plates. The first book to be printed on wove paper, which was invented by John Baskerville, is this Baskerville Virgil of 1757. And there is very little doubt. Some inventions are lost in the clouds of history. The invention of wove paper is not one of them. Uh, Baskerville did invent it, and it was necessary to have had woven wire screening before this paper could be produced. The final touch, oh, excuse me, the final touch in uh, the refinement of paper was required by the invention of aquatint. This is the first English aquatint, uh, Paul Sandby's views in South Wales. Uh, and aquatint, because of the peculiarity of the process, particularly as one sees these fine washes, aquatint was made to imitate watercolor. Aquatint, because of the refinement of the process and refinement of the plate, took even more care, required even more care, on the making of paper surface than anything that had preceded it, including mezzotint. And if we look at a close-up of this aquatint, we see why. This is all done with resin washes. One is not sure how, but probably painted on the plate in some spirits of turpentine or something of the kind, and then, and then etched. But the biting of an aquatint is very tricky. And to reproduce fine places like this could only have been done with paper that had an extraordinarily smooth surface, far different from that which was used for the relief printing in earliest times in the 15th century. Another trend took place at the same time 
and that is the demand for paper increased enormously. As literacy rates went up and as quantities of books increased, it was no longer possible to sustain all of the demand for paper with the supply of rags that were available. That, in large part, accounts for the deterioration that one sees in paper uh, in the uh, 16th, in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Then it was helped along by the Dutch paper industry and the invention of the beater, but went downhill again in the 18th century, and people began to look for other materials out of which to make paper. One of the earliest researchers in that field was Johann Christian Schaefer, a uh, parson in Regensburg, Germany, who published a six-volume work in 1765 to, seven, 1760, uh, 1765 to 1770, uh, which has a long German title, which is Versuchen, Mustern, Ohne, Ohne, uh, so on and so forth. But anyway, it's how to make paper with rags or with only a small admixture of them. In this, he made paper out of many different materials. In this case, out, in this case, out of dachschindeln or roof shingles, which were made of wood and which he defibered to make the paper. The white background, by the way, is not the paper. It is on the other side, but that's conventional laid paper. The, the paper made out of roof shingles is actually brown, but Schaefer had his daughter paint on it to demonstrate that it could be used for that purpose. Here he has made paper out of tannenzapfen, pine cones, uh, and everyone until uh, a German scientist of the uh, late 19th, early 20th century named Wilhelm Herzberg. Everyone until Herzberg accepted, accepted Schaefer's researches at face value and said, isn't it wonderful that he made this paper out of pine cones and roof shingles and a thousand other things? Uh, Herzberg was enough of a German and enough of a scientist to prove that Schaefer, Schaefer cheated. Uh, practically every sample contains a certain amount of rag fiber in order to hold it together. And there's no doubt that this does contain pine cones, but it isn't all pine cones, because if it were, it would be in shreds. Um, so Schaefer's heart was in the right place and his researches were in the right place, but uh, it wasn't entirely scientific. Uh, in any event, it is an important work because it led the way toward genuine industrial research uh, like this small-scale one. This paper, as you see, it says over here, ce volume est imprimé sur uh, du papier du guimauve. Guimauve is a reed called, uh, it's a marshmallow like a cattail. Uh, this was made by the French uh, manager of the mill in Montargis, the royal paper mill north of Paris, uh, and is the result of some experiments that he conducted, and this genuinely is made entirely of paper made from cattails. He did two versions of this, one of Guimauve cattails, as you see here, another from the inner bark of the linden tree, uh, and he had two years earlier conducted some experiments which marked his first publication of this. But this is 1786 and it really is the first uh, demonstration that it was possible to use material other than rag in their entirety to make paper. Matthias Koops, to whom the real industrial invention was left, was an Englishman with a Dutch name who lived in London and who established a very large paper manufactory in Bermondsey, 
in London in 1800, and this is the first book that he printed on paper made from straw. And as you see, it says this book is printed on paper made solely from straw. Indeed, it is made solely from straw, and the yellow color has not affected the strength of the paper one whit. Straw makes, in fact, very good paper. Still does, isn't used very much, but makes excellent paper. <clears throat> and Coop's really did make paper out of it, and it came out this yellow color. He made paper for the first time out of waste paper as well, and published that in his second edition of this same book. So he was really a great innovator, and on a commercial scale. Unfortunately, in four years he went bankrupt uh, because nobody bought his straw paper, uh, they preferred other kinds of paper, perhaps because they were white, but in any event, uh, he, his enterprise did not last. But the year 1800 marks really the great dividing line in uh, many ways, in graphic illustration, in paper, in printing, uh, and it's what I choose to call the confluence of 1800. Coops was one part of that confluence. Another part, the most important part from the point of view of paper, was the invention of the paper machine. It was invented by a Frenchman named Nicolas Louis Robert. This is one of his drawings if I can get it now. This is one of his drawings made by him for the English patent application, sent by him with his brother-in-law, John Gamble, to England. And Gamble, in turn, went to a firm of stationers, Bloxham and Fordrenier, for financing. They did finance the development of this machine, and it was the progenitor and the prototype of all paper machines. They unfortunately had the same history as did Coops. The firm of Bloxham and Fordrenier went bankrupt because of all the money that they had invented, invested in this invention. But their chief engineer, Brian Duncan, went on to become the first great designer of paper machinery. Now, how does this machine work? This is a cutaway view, and it has a paddle wheel here that revolves in a vat of pulp. The wheel revolves in this direction, throws the pulp up with the paddles onto a wire screen, which is being turned by a hand crank, which is geared to turn the paddle wheel as well. The wire screen moves between these press rolls, which squeeze some of the water out, and the roll of paper is wound up here, and they couldn't wind up much more than about 12 or 15 feet of paper before they had to cut it off the roll, but that was enough for its first use. Its first use was for wallpaper. The big problem with wallpaper prior to the invention of the paper machine was that sheets of paper had to be pasted together to make wallpaper. For the first time, it was possible with a paper machine to make a 12-foot long piece of wallpaper, which could then be printed and hung in one piece. So one-piece wallpaper does not predate, that is, full-height wallpaper, does not predate uh, the paper machine. This machine was invented, as I say, the English patent was applied for in 1800, the first machine went into operation, the first practical machine, which was not a hand-operated one like this, steam-operated, went into operation in 1804, and from then on, uh, it uh, grew like wildfire. Now, contemporaneously with Coops's invention of straw paper and with the invention of the paper machine came that which plagued librarians until the present time, that is the invention of rosin and alum sizing by a, a 
an Alsatian papermaker by the name of Moritz Illig, whose name you see signed here. This is his own copy of his book, which incidentally exists in only two copies, as far as I know, this one and one in Darmstadt. And it speaks of this being instructions for uh, a certain simple uh, and practical uh, way of sizing paper in der Masse zu Leimen, sizing paper in the mass, in the tub, literally, instead of making the paper first and then applying sizing to the surface. This had an enormous effect upon the ability to produce paper, and, but it contained within itself a kind of an atomic time bomb uh, because it's a little bit like the guy who puts fertilizer on the lawn and thinks if the setting of five on the, on the spreader is good, well, ten might be twice as good, and then the lawn turns out brown. Um, this is very much what happened with alum. Alum was needed in the proper proportion to precipitate the rosin sizing, but found itself useful in many other ways, so that the early papermakers said, or the papermakers of this time, gosh, the more alum we put in, the better it's going to be because it helps us act as a defomer and so on and so forth. And it really is the abuse of the use of alum, not the invention per se of rosin and alum sizing that is the guilty party. Uh, excess alum, as you have, I'm sure, read many times over, uh, hydrolyzes over a period of time, becomes acidic, and deteriorates the paper. The deterioration of paper in this way can really be measured from the early uses of rosin and alum sizing from the, let us say, the second decade of the uh, 19th century when it first came into use until about 20 years ago. Interestingly enough, John Murray, uh, the London writer who wrote about many things, in his practical remarks on, on modern paper, complained about the use of excess alum in paper, not because he saw it deteriorating the paper, but because he felt that too many chemicals were being added to the paper and that would surely deteriorate it. He complained also about the paper machine because it required shorter fiber to be used and many other things. So he had really great foresight. The last member of the confluence of 1800, and by no means the least important, was Alois Sennefelder, who in 1798 invented what he called Kamischen Druck, uh, chemical printing, uh, which we now know as lithography, which was then called Steinbruck stone printing. Now, he makes the specific point in this manual, published in 1818, that it is desirable and necessary to have paper with a smooth surface to print lithographs, and moreover to have wove rather than laid paper, because the laid lines interfere with the transfer of the image from the stone. And in fact, most early lithographs are indeed printed on wove paper. Not all of them are, but most are. The English edition of uh, the Zenefelder Manual in 1819, a year later, uh, showed the other great possibility of lithography, and that is the reproductive possibility, because here we have a part of the Mainz Psalter of 1457 uh, reproduced as a frontispiece. And lithography, in fact, got its big 19th century boost uh, as a reproductive process rather than an artistic one, although the earliest artistic lithographs <coughs> uh, appeared in England, this one by Benjamin West in 1803 in the collection Specimens of Polyautography. Uh, it was thought of first as an artist's process because it could reproduce readily drawings done freehand 
without the intervention of a relief block to be cut or an intaglio plate to be cut, but the artist could draw on the stone as West did and reproduce the drawing directly from that for the first time. But the surface of paper was enormously important to the continued development of lithography. All of that to the contrary notwithstanding, the reproductive illustrative process that took over the 19th century uh, was wood engraving, which was invented by the brothers Buick, Thomas and John Buick, here shown in their poems of Goldsmith and Parnell of 1795. Um, and the single reason for its strength as a reproductive process throughout the 19th century until it was supplanted by photography, uh, that is by photographic reproduction in about in the 1880s, the single reason for the predominance of wood engraving is that it could be locked up along with relief type and printed at the same time did not require a separate impression. And it was not until lithography and photography were tied together, that didn't take place as a commercial medium, I should say. That didn't take place until almost 1900, and it was followed almost immediately thereafter by the invention of the offset press in about 1910. And by 1950, this is a wood engraving close-up. You can see this is, by the way, a white line process uh, rather than black line. Uh, but you can see why the London Illustrated, for example, the greatest illustrated publication of the English-speaking world, used wood engravings throughout the 19th century until it was possible for them to have photographic halftones after 1890. This is the reason, as I say, that it could be locked up along with type. Now, if one wants to see the extreme in paper surface, one has to look at a demonstration like this one in William Savage's uh, Practical Hints on Decorative Printing of 1822. This illustration called The Ode to Mercy is printed from 23 wood blocks printed in register. Uh, and to give you an idea of what that looks like close up, uh, you can see how many blocks there are just to print a small area. Now, unlike the stipple engraving that was so popular at the time, which could be, on which the plate could be painted, could be inked a la poupée, this was printed, well, you see here, there is a red block, a black outline block, a pink block, a brown block, another darker brown block, and so on, green, etc., uh, etc., et blue and whatnot. Um, this is all printed, each one, from separate blocks. Now, this is a real tour de force, and there was a certain amount of woodblock printing that was done like this in the 19th century, but not a great deal. For this purpose, it was lithography, which was the process par excellence, but which was used for separate illustrations from the text. And the earliest color lithography, for the first time, where overlaid colors were used rather than separate flat colors was Thomas Schotter Boys's views in Paris, Ghent, uh, and Rouen of 1839. And these colors are overprinted one on the other to give this effect. There is absolutely no hand coloring in this. And believe me, the surface of the paper in this instance is smooth, heavily filled with chalk, in order to permit the printing of this kind of fine illustrative material on it. It is a long distance away from the rough laid surface of the Caxton Chaucer that you saw before. But the real root of modern four-color printing is here in this method of first Leblanc, in this case of Gautier d'Agoti, uh, 
1756, this is a mezzotent printed from four blocks, a green block, a red one, a blue one, and a black one, and is really the beginning of our present-day trichromatic printing process. But the big change came about with photography. Uh, early photographic books are illustrated with photographs themselves, as was this one in 1854. <clears throat> but in the same book even, if one wanted to illustrate a flower, this is one of the rare occurrences in which nature printing was used. Nature printing was a, lasted about 10 years and it's at its height from 1854 until the 1870s perhaps but which actually consisted of taking the object and making a plate from it by impressing it into a soft lead plate and then making an electrotype from that and printing from the electrotype. Photography still was not able to reproduce itself in the form of ink until our present day trichromatic process required really the final change in paper surface. Here you see two pieces of paper printed with the same illustration in four color process. In this case, coated paper. In this case, uncoated paper. You may like it or not, but you see the difference in sharpness between the two. And if you're printing the Sears catalog or some other, something else and you want to sell something and you require sharpness of image, you don't print four color process on uncoated paper. To give you an idea why, this is a half tone magnified a hundred times on uncoated paper. And you notice that the half tone dots are rather uh, fuzzy. If we look at the same half tone printed on coated paper, it looks like this. The dots are sharp, uh, they have sharp edges, and the sharpness of the image on the coated paper comes through. Now what do we mean by coated paper? Very simply, we mean the application, in this case by what we call a trailing blade coater, quite a modern machine, we mean the application of coating material right here. The roll is going this way. To the surface of an uncoated paper web, which comes in here, and the coating is applied there. The coating consists simply of something which will cover the surface of the paper, originally chalk, then clay, and today a mixture of clay, calcium carbonate, and some plastic pigment, which is adhered to the surface of paper by an adhesive, originally casein and today latex and starch. That coating makes it possible to transform the surface of paper from uncoated paper, which looks like this close up, to coated paper, which looks like this close up. Now let's take that back again. You see the fibers of the paper which have been flattened by the beating process and which are laid over one another which present really rather a rough surface where here they have been covered for the most part by the application of coating and adhesive. And the ultimate coating process is what we call cast coating, which is the extremely shiny paper you sometimes see on the covers of brochures or in table tents in restaurants, which is coating applied in quite a different way, but is the ultimate surface which permits printing because it is still discontinuous and yet uh, at the same time is the ultimate in smoothness. So we saw that the confluence of 1800 uh, with the preceded by the invention of wove paper transformed the surface of paper by lithography and its needs preceded of course by the intaglio processes and we saw too that after the advent of photography in 1839 
and its subsequent application to printing in the 1880s and 90s, a need for a totally different kind of paper surface arose. And from a printing point of view, not from an artistic point of view, but from a printing point of view in terms of technological result, the final step to this time in producing paper surface occurred with the application of coating to paper, uh, utilizing at the same time the trichromatic process and photography to reproduce colored halftones. Now, I'm going to anticipate two questions. I know that that's the end of this part of the talk. If somebody will turn up the lights, I would appreciate it. Um, I would like to take a couple of moments and anticipate two questions that I know you will all ask. One is an issue which is now a non-issue, uh, and that is you have all heard a great deal about the need for permanent paper, alkaline paper. There is even a publication devoted to the subject. Uh, and the issue is a non-issue at this time because the printing paper industry in large part is today producing paper which is alkaline and which is therefore permanent. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, most of the paper which is produced for office use, that is copy paper and things of that kind, are at this time not entirely alkaline, although many of them are. Paper that goes into books today, or even into magazines, is uh, for the most part paper which is very long-lasting, so that the issue, at least in terms of books, is a non-issue. That is not true in the case of journals, uh, because uh, there, for economic reasons, paper which contains groundwood, mechanical fiber, which deteriorates on its own, is used. But the question of alkaline paper with respect to hardbound books is, in the opinion of this person, myself, a non-issue at this time. What is not a non-issue is the other question, which I am sure is in your mind, and that is, uh, the whole ecological question which is on everyone's lips. Twenty years ago, we in the paper industry always used to be asked, why do you destroy all those trees uh, to make paper? You're, you're ruining the environment. You're ruining the ecology. Well, it over time has been demonstrated that with the exception of the Pacific Northwest where old growth is a different issue, uh, it has been pretty clearly demonstrated that reforestation, particularly in the south, where trees are raised as a crop, takes place at a faster rate, in fact, than that at which they are being cut. The ecological issue of today is no longer one of the use of trees for fiber, but rather one of the solid waste stream. <clears throat> we think in the paper industry that the issue of the use of trees may perhaps come back to haunt us again if the production of pulp catches up with forestation. But that the need for recycling paper to interrupt and reduce the solid waste stream is indeed a very real need. It is not something from which the paper industry has looked aside, nor is it something which should be looked aside from. There is, however, a distinct problem. Um, fiber which is recycled uh, can fall into a couple of different categories. In paper manufacturing, we use fiber which has been produced as dry waste as a matter of habit because we can't throw it away. It's too expensive. That, in a sense, is recycling but we've always recycled that kind of fiber. <clears throat> fiber which is collected from post-consumer use is another matter, because collecting it is one thing, it is an expense, sorting it is another, and making it into paper is still a third. 
Now, it's possible to, to make paper out of old newspapers and milk cartons, some milk cartons, but it's not possible to make printing paper out of those. The use for old newspapers, uh, which will now increase, is the kind of gray chipboard, as we call it, or shirt cardboard, which has to some degree disappeared off the market and has been replaced by virgin fiber used in bleached white board. That will evolve back again toward gray board as the pressure for recycling newsprint old newspapers uh, grows. The use of other kinds of post-consumer fiber for the making of paper becomes a difficult issue because it is not possible to take paper which has been adulterated with waxes and plastic, as milk carton stock, for example, has been, or other packaging papers, put them back into high-grade coated papers, such as you saw before, and still make it printable. It's beyond the bounds of modern technology, of present-day technology, I should say. So recycling is a very real issue which will not go away, but is one which presents considerable problems for genuine use in other than coarse grades of paper which are used for packaging purposes. That is growing rapidly and will continue to grow. In printing paper, it is going to be, it is going to require a major change in technology and collection methods before that happens. But believe me, the ecological problem and the reduction of the solid waste stream is a very genuine problem, is one which cannot be buried under the carpet, let alone in landfills, uh, and is one which is going to be with us, I'm afraid, for a long time. Any other question? I wanted to anticipate those two questions because they're always asked by an audience like this one. But any other questions you may have, I'd be happy to try to answer personally later on. Thank you very much.